This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Anne Hornaday, chief film critic for The Washington Post. And today I'm very pleased to be joined by actor Sir Patrick Stewart, who has written a marvelous new memoir, Making It So. Patrick Stewart, welcome. Thank you, and I'm delighted to be talking with you. It's a pleasure to have you. This is just a beautifully written book. I was surprised to learn just now that you were reluctant to write a book. You're a natural. Oh my, yes. Um, as uh, I mentioned in one of those clips you just showed, um, I began reading uh, seriously when I was about six. We we had no television, no record player. <clears throat> Excuse me. All we had was the radio, and that was BBC. Nothing else. Um, so books became my source of entertainment. And when I was about seven, I found the local library, and they were... They were so generous to me and uh, kind and showed me where the children's section was. Well, I would go there and get out books. And then after a while, I wandered around the library and I found the adult section. And that changed my life again because I began looking at much older books and books that I'd never heard of. And one of my passions became 20th century American literature. Um, but so I've read all my, my day, every single day, no matter how early I have to get up, I begin with a cup of tea and a book, not a script, not emails, a book. And it's my book, my time, and I spoil myself with 20 minutes to half an hour of reading. That is a fabulous habit and, and one we should all take up for ourselves. I'm afraid I'd fall asleep again. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's how I usually put myself to sleep. But, you know, I was so impressed reading this book, how vividly you bring back that childhood. You were um, brought up in an industrial town in Yorkshire, very modest means, as you say in the introduction, one up, one down, no indoor toilet. Um, tell me about conjuring that time in your life and sort of what was it easy to bring all those memories back, or did you sort of have to sit and let them come? It it was astonishingly easy, more than I had anticipated, because um, 10 years ago, I could have consulted my family. Uh, since then, both my brothers, my older brothers, have died. May they rest in peace. And I uh, I found that... Once I had opened a door into a specific memory that I knew was accurate and actually happened, other doors began to open, uh, windows began to open, and I could breathe in the air of my childhood. And I was completely unprepared for that. So it was a, a much more exciting and pleasant experience than I had anticipated. That's wonderful. As you mentioned, you, you did become an avid reader, Steinbeck, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, all these wonderful, he said 20th century American writers. 
where did they take you that you needed to go? At the, to, to take us back to that time in your life and sort of the circumstances of your life and what these books, these narratives did for you. Well, I was about to say they took me back in time. <laughs> but I don't mean that to have a, a, a sci-fi uh, reference. But um, I, was, I, I knew that I was reading books that had been written mostly a, a few decades earlier. And um, I liked that introduction. And the fact that it was American rather than English society, you know, I didn't find myself, as I did sometimes with English movies, comparing the life of people on the movies to the life that I was living, which was modest, to say the least. And uh, I... I, I I think the fact that I now live in the United States, that Los Angeles is my home with my wife, um, it feels very appropriate because the United States was having an impact on my life for a very, very long time and an early impact when it really counts, you know, before the age of 10 or 11. So interesting because your career really didn't bring you to Hollywood or to New York until relatively later in your career. You would, you know, you were very well established on the on the British stage. Um, as a matter of fact, I think a lot of our viewers and your readers might be surprised to learn about your love for American literature just because you are so deeply associated with Shakespeare. Tell us a little bit about your introduction to Shakespeare and how Shakespeare entered your life. One of the two people uh, whom my book to whom my book is dedicated is a man called Cecil Dormand, who also sadly died about two years ago when he was well into his 90s. Cecil Dormand was my English teacher from the age of 12. I went to a very non-academic school. Um, but that was best for me. And by the way, I chose that rather than going to grammar school, because on the day of sitting the exam, I went walking in the hills instead of taking the exam, which um, was a bold move for uh, a 10-year-old child to make, but it was the right one. And uh, Cecil Dormand, one day at the start of a class, had a pile of paperback books in his hand, and he went round the classroom, dropping a book in front of one of the boys or girls, because we were not just a, a boys' school. Um, and uh, and as he dropped the book, he would name a name. And these were characters in the play that he'd handed us, which was The Merchant of Venice. And he, he would, and when he came to me, he said, um, Patrick, Shylock. Well, I never heard of Sherlock. I'd never heard of The Merchant of Venice. Um, I'd heard of Venice, I suppose, but that was all. But it began right there. And uh, Cecil said to us when we had our books open, Act 4, Scene 2, now start reading. And of course, we all read silently. And he yelled at us, no, no, you fools, not to yourselves. This is life. This is drama. It's happening. It's real. Come on, you've got to speak these lines out loud. Well, 
As we turned the pages, I saw that coming up was an enormous speech by Shylock, uh, which opens the famous trial scene in The Merchant of Venice, which I have actually played several several times. And um, the words that I was having to pronounce, I had never seen before or been able to pronounce before. Um, so I was not understanding, I was not comprehending really the details of what I was saying, but I had an overall sense of an individual who was emotional, angry, and looking for some sort of recompense. Just enough to give me a feeling about what the emotions behind the dialogue were. And of course, it was written in blank verse. And I think Shylock's speech is iambic pentameter. I don't think it's prose. I should have checked that. But um, it there was something about the rhythm of the words as I spoke. You know, all of this was not then, but has been me reflecting on what it must have felt to sit in that classroom and to be reading Shakespeare. Um, it felt wonderful. And thank it's you, a, Cecil. It's, a, it's it, indeed, thank you, Cecil. And part of the charm and the delight of this book is just the effect that your teachers, that so many of these teachers and adults and mentors had on you, you know, you were really beautifully guided by people who saw your, you know, saw something in you. Um, and it's just a real testament to their belief and their leadership and their caring. You know, it's it's just a lovely document of that. Thank you. Thank you, you. So, um, and I think that you're right about Shakespeare, you know, he operates on so many levels, and one of them is just purely sensory and sens sensuous. You know, it, you can kind of let the language wash over you and not necessarily comprehend each and every word, but you get it. You know, that's part of the genius of Shakespeare. Yeah. Yes, that's that can be very well illustrated in one of Shakespeare's sonnets. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration makes or bends with the remover to remove, oh no. It is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken, loves not time's fool. Though ruby lips and cheeks within his bending sickles compass come love alters not with his brief hours and weeks but bears it out even to the edge of doom there are two more lines that make me very emotional so i'm stopping there don't you feel that he's talking to you it's personal. Absolutely. He knows well, who you are, you know, he knows what the problems are, and he's giving you incredibly sound advice. If you are in love, trust it. Trust it. Yeah. Well, uh -huh. I might 
I might add, it's the song, but it's also the singer here. We, we you, you are, you are in a beautiful emotional instrument for this for this work. And I want this actually leads me to we have a question from the audience. Mary Ann Leonard from Maryland says, "It seems like a lifetime ago, but thank you for the gift of Shakespeare's sonnets during the height of the pandemic." How do you think delivering a sonnet a day changed or deepened your appreciation of Shakespeare's work? Well, uh, we have to thank Sonny, my wife, for that. One day we were walking along the street, and it is customary with me and a habit, and it can be irritating, I understand, that lines of Shakespeare will float into my head. And I don't like to just keep them in my head. I like to release them, let them out in the air. And so I began quietly speaking the words of the sonnet I've just quoted. And um, my wife said, what's that? Is that Shakespeare? And I said, yes, it's just a sonnet. It floated into my head. And she said, you know what? Um, start it again. And, and I, can I, I want to take a, a, a little picture of you. Um, but what she did was record it. And, and when we looked at it, she said, and although this was recorded on the street, uh, let's post it. I think people would enjoy seeing this. And it, it exploded, the, the, uh, the posting. And uh, it was then that she said, you know what? What if you did one every day, a new one every day? And it it might be something that could help people get through this difficult time, which was which was COVID, and uh, it did. So I, I was, and I, I have another plan with uh, about the sonnets as well that I might be able to talk about another time. But um, do it now. Think, Say, tell, it, tell us now. I, I feel grateful that, that Shakespeare came into my life because he has provided me with so many em emotional corridors, access to the most intense feelings, and not all romantic or sentimental, some of them violent and horrendous. And I've, I, I've played some of the worst characters for this. Leontes and, and Macbeth, um, and uh, there are times and other times comic characters, but he has filled out my life and he's always there. And I shall never, never uh, let go of that. I hope not. I hope my, I hope my head can hold on to it. Well, obviously, you know, Clearly, one of your best-known roles is Jean-Luc Picard in uh, Star Trek: Next Generation. Um, you, uh, the LA Times, famously referred to as unknown British Shakespearean actor at the time you were cast, but which is people have a great deal of fun at your expense with that. Uh, your castmates in in the book, um, but how did? that training and, and those characters inform. I mean, we, we see uh, we see some through lines there with Picard, don't we? Yes, you do. Um, I was not a fan, and this is a dangerous thing to say, but I have to say it, I was not a fan of science fiction. I, I read very little of it, 
And certainly as an entertainment, I, I didn't know anything about it. So when one day my agent called me up and said, all right, I've got two questions for you. What were you doing last night at UCLA? And why would Gene Roddenberry want to see you in an hour from now, this morning? Um, and <laughs> it, it, it was all a mystery to me. I didn't know why he wanted to see me. Um, and in fact, I didn't know it was a he. I thought Gene Roddenberry would have to be a, a woman. J-E-A-N, Gene Roddenberry. Well, uh, I was wrong in every count. And uh, that's how it all began. But the one element that John Luke had, which I, I really felt I needed to... Um, to work on was his leadership qualities, that that was probably the most important part. He was the captain of the enterprise and he had other very gifted and talented people working with him and his respect for them and his way of listening to their, their comments and their feelings was so, was so much a part of what I had learned performing Shakespeare that actually Shakespeare was behind quite a lot of what I did in that first season. And some of it was too big. Some of it was over the top. And when I rewatched the whole of season one of Next Generation, um, oh, maybe a year ago now, when I got to that section of the book, um, I decided that in order to refresh my mind about Star Trek, I should watch the first season. And I, I, I quite enjoyed it, but I was not happy with my work. I thought it was a little too theatrical, a little too um, stern, um, a little too acting out the emotions that he was feeling. And, and I, I'm glad to say that because of the, the the relationship I had with my fellow actors, my colleagues on the show, I so admired what they were doing. I could make adjustments to my approach to the work so that I think by the time we got into season two, there was more naturalness about what I was doing, which pleased me very much. And um, it's it's stayed there. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing I love about this book is that it is such a chron vivid chronicle of post-war Britain's support for the arts, especially theater. You are such a product of amateur theater and all these wonderful regional theaters. And then, of course, um, you know, the rep system, the repertory system that is just that is produced our greatest actors, I would I would argue. And of course, that started to come unravel during the Thatcher era. Um, and I just was wondering, well, this is sort of a two-part question, but one is, do you see a difference in your American colleagues' approach to acting? Is that different than your approach that you, you know, having come up through that wonderful sort of farm system? I think there has to be because the theater was my major influence. And I, uh, I, I, that that overwhelmed my life, and I had no ambitions beyond uh, being on a stage with a live audience. Um, I yes, there were certain companies I wanted to work with, and my objective 
was always ultimately the same one, which was the Royal Shakespeare Company. And um, I spelt, spent about 12 years, I mean, 12 consecutive years working with that company. <clears throat> and it was like, it was like being at college. It was like, which, what I never was. I went to, I went to acting school, but I never had academic um, classes at all. But uh, working in the theater expanded my understanding of the world and uh, the importance of subtle relationships between actors and audience and so forth. So th there were many ways in which I benefited. And when the time came for me to land myself in front of a camera, uh, be it uh, television or, or movies, I had to start relearning because there is a difference. And I, 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 I like talking with young actors and I've done some classes at times and I do find that very few of them have these days had stage experience. They, they leave drama school or they made a decision and they joined the union and they become screen actors right away. So they've never lived through that experience of being in front of a live and enthusiastic audience. And uh, I find that very disappointing. And yes, you're right. You, you were the one that mentioned Margaret Thatcher. She has a lot to have been responsible for in the unraveling of the, the um, the, the country's response to people who wanted to be creative and their support for them and encouragement. I was accepted into a drama school without any scholarly education behind me. Uh, and it was like it was like acting university. Um, but uh, it. It, it couldn't be replaced. And so the fact that so many young actors have not had that opportunity, I find very sad. And the gradual unraveling, particularly of the Tory party in the United Kingdom of, of um, uh, artistic creativity and, and funding and so forth. I, I was given uh, an award by my local county council in the West Riding of Yorkshire um, to go to drama school because my parents, we had no money. And it was my father's, father's first question when I told them I'd been offered a place at Bristol. And he said, aye, but who's going to pay for it, lad? And we had no money. And I, I, uh, my acting teacher, Ruth Winnowin, to whom the book is also dedicated, she suggested that I should make an application for a grant to my local county council. And I did not expecting much because, you know, I had no degrees, I had no exam results, nothing at all to show. Um, I'd spent half my time at school doing metalwork and woodwork and, uh, and working in the gardens as well, which I enjoyed all of that. Um. Well, and you did it, had a brief stint as a journalist too, which is a fascinating chapter in this book. Um, we're 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 approaching the finish line here, and I know our listeners will be disappointed if I don't mention Charles Xavier. 
and your involvement with the X-Men. Um, some say these movies are not true cinema. What say you, Patrick Stewart? Not true cinema? Huh. And I have never heard that before. Uh, and so I some don't understand. Yeah. The franchise, but yeah, some some filmmakers. Uh, I think Martin Scorsese has been pretty critical of the of the franchise films. Think you know, saying that they're that's they're they're not uh, pure film art the way he thinks of it. Well, there are many ways of filmmaking. Um, I, I'm so glad to say because it. I, I fell in love with with movies as well when I was ten or eleven, and luckily because I always looked older than I was, and I hope now I look younger than I am, but it meant that I could get in to see adult movies which I was too young to attend, um, and that was of immense value to me. So uh, I don't I don't see what, why there should be a a complaint of that kind against. Uh, franchises like X-Men and Star Trek and so forth. Well, I think maybe the way I see it is that we want a healthy ecosystem and room for all of these wonderful expressions to bloom. So um, trivia question, Xavier and Deadpool 3 by any chance? Xavier, say, ask it again, please. In Deadpool, will we expect to see Charles in Deadpool 3? <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 I'm aware of this, but I am not allowed to make any comment about it. I'm sorry. As a fellow journalist, you know I have to ask. Um, I want to read something. You wrote so beautifully in your book about the transcendent quality of great acting. I have sensed emanations coming from certain performers on stage, notably the actors Judy Dench, Juliet Stevenson, Harriet Walter, Ian Holm, and Ian McKellen, that speak to more than their skill, as if, he, as if each is enrobed in an invisible cloak of truth that elevates their always stellar performances. I think that's one of the best descriptions of that lifting quality of great acting that we all recognize when we see it but can't always articulate um and it leads me to ask you when you're working with these people and i would dare say they would describe you the same way um but when have you had those experiences as an as a fellow actor with another actor oh it's it's the height of pleasure excitement, creativity. Um, I, I have only to give the example when Ian McKellen and I did Waiting for Godot and um, uh, and then we did a, a Pinterplay. Um, we, there, these were two male roles and um, Ian is a very dear and beloved friend and we literally played we no performance was ever quite the same and that's one of the wonderful things about about being in a stage production because every evening and every matinee you can start again 
you can embrace something new and explore it. And with actors like Ian and Juliet and, and Zoe Watermaker, who I've worked with, this is how they work. And so you are doing a play is not just a case of repetition. It's recreation every moment. Beautifully put. I am heartbroken to say we are out of time. I love this conversation. Sir Patrick Stewart, thank you so much for joining us here on Washington Post Live. Thank you, Anne. I've enjoyed this very much, and I'm quite honored that the Washington Post should want to talk with me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Tis the season for summer road trip adventures. And Firestone Complete Auto Care's epic savings event with up to $100 off select services from June 6th to the 9th. Limited time offer, conditions apply. Go to FirestoneComplete.com for details.